most people's frame of reference in their belief system is the idea that good things should happen to good people and perhaps if they stop to think about it that bad things should happen to bad people and the truth is when life doesn't go that way when bad things happen to good people for some it is devastating and many people many people that I know because of bad things happening to good people however you define that they turn their backs on God now they may say to you oh I don't believe in God but the truth is that is just much easier to say than I do believe in God but I don't respect him enough to live for him in the book of Job we've seen a man a good man and in fact God says that he is a good man at the very beginning of the book he says there is no one like him on earth he is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil let me just say this if God says that about you that's a pretty good thing to hear right I mean if anybody outside of Jesus and maybe his cousin John the Baptist whom Jesus says is the greatest man ever to live ever deserved for good things to happen in his life it was Job I mean, Job is what we would define as a good person. And for most of his life, until the point we get to, things have gone really well for him. He has a great family. He has lots of possessions, which translates into money in our modern context. He has lots of friends. He has people that respect him, and he has power within his community. Everything is going well for Job. And it fits, right? It fits into our box. Hey, he's a good guy. And look, good things are happening to him. But then what happens to Job comes outside of our box and it gets difficult. It doesn't fit in our belief systems anymore. We read starting way back in chapter 1. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. It's a terrible tragedy. I mean, Job loses the majority of his possessions. And the most difficult part, of course, is that his children are dead. Every single one of his children. And it's easy, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, because of time and, and space to, to say, oh, no biggie, he lived thousands of years ago. But this is a real man who had ten children, and every one of them died in a single natural disaster. But it gets worse for Job. Much worse, really. Chapter 2, verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. 
We've talked about this skin disease for so many weeks now that it's almost become a joke. I mean, how many times can you say the word pus in a sermon consecutively? That makes eight if you're counting, and we'll try to squeeze it in next week, maybe two. And so we've talked about this, but it's this skin disease that, that he has blackish open wounds all over his body. And that's just the main symptom of what he's dealing with because there's other sub-symptoms to whatever disease Job had. He can't sleep at night. He has terrible breath. He's having horrific dreams. It seems like he is suffering from fever. And things just all over his body are beginning to hurt. And so Job is dealing with the disease unlike any that most of us have dealt with. And then Job's wife enters into the narrative. And she looks at Job. And she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God. And here's the choice, right? I mean, when bad things happen to good people, they have the right to curse God or to not curse God. I mean, when things go wrong in our lives and we don't deserve whatever that thing is, and when we look around and we see starving children and hurting people all around us, we have the choice to either curse God or not. Now, here's the thing that, that you need to recognize. For, for most people, cursing God doesn't come in the form of, hey, God, I curse you. It comes in, in a much subtler way. Let me just give you some examples that I, I've seen around me in my life. Here's one. My parents took me to church every Sunday, but got drunk every other night of the week. They abused me. If these people believed in God, then I don't want anything to do with God. Or how about this? I was born with this handicap. I did nothing to deserve it. God is not fair. I will not serve him. Or how about this text message I received this very week while I was working on this sermon? Please pray right now for our friend Jenny's daughter to be brought back to life after drowning in the bath this morning. The doctors are trying to revive her right now. The second one that I received. I'm sorry to say that she didn't survive. Please pray for comfort for Jenny and her husband and their newborn child. It's a tragedy, right? And in the face of it, in the face of things like that, we choose. Am I going to curse God? Am I going to turn my back on him and walk away from him? Pretend that I don't believe in him? Say, I will not serve you. Or are we going to continue to worship like Job did? Now, this isn't the only way Job is confronted with this question because Job's three friends show up on the scene in chapter 4. And if you've been with us, then you know what happens. For uh, the rest of the book, pretty much 34 chapters of the book, a debate ensues between Job and his friends. And the friends say, if I can paint this in one broad stroke for you, the friends say, look, Job, God punishes those who are in sin. He blesses those who are not. You are not being blessed, so therefore you must be sinning. Repent of your sins and live for God, and he will bless you once again. And Job responds by saying, Look, I agree that most often God blesses those who do good and punishes those who do bad, but I'm telling you I'm not sinning, and so therefore I am telling you that I do not deserve this. I wish that I could present my case to God. Now, you look at this, and they say things that are just slightly different, right? 
And in the, the, the chapter of Scripture we're going to get to today, God says, look, the friends were wrong and Job was right. And I just want to point out the major difference. Because I think with our current context in the world in which we live, I think that the, the subtle difference is so key in how people respond to God in the face of bad things happening to good people. Here it is. The friends say, look, I know that you must be doing something wrong because things are not going well for you. Okay? Job says, I know that's usually the case, but I know what's right and real in this situation, and I refuse to say something that is wrong about God. You see, the big difference is that the friends take this theological concept that they have and they apply it in the wrong ways. And what they're doing is they're saying, hey, Job, you should agree with us and you should speak incorrectly about God. And here's the thing about it. When we speak incorrectly about God, in some ways we are cursing him. Here's how it looks in our, in our modern world, I think. I think this is the type of things that you would hear from people in the modern world who have looked at bad things happening to good people. And have said, look, I, I don't want anything to do with God. Here, let me just give you some examples. God must not be good because he allowed for this to happen. You've heard that, right? I mean, there, there's starving children in other continents and even in our own country. And so therefore, God must not be that good. I don't want anything to do with him. Or how about this? God must not be that powerful if he's going to allow for this to happen. And so therefore, I'm not going to give him the respect of giving him my life. Or how about this one? If God let this happen, then he must not be that loving. And so I am not going to love him. You see, it's like Job's friends and that instead of wrestling with the difficulty of what we see in the world, but continuing to respect and know that God is God, people say, look, because I see something that is difficult, I'll turn my back on God and I will speak incorrectly about him. Because bad things happen to good people, God must not be good. Because bad things happen to good people, God must not be that loving. Because bad things happen to good people, God must not be that powerful. And so therefore, I'm not going to live for him. Isn't that the case? I mean, isn't that the argument that if you're a Christian, you've heard? And if you're not a Christian that you've made? Well... I'm not going to give my life to God because look what God allows to happen. And really what you're saying, if we can just boil it down, is, is you're saying, I don't respect the way that God does things. And so I'm not going to give my life to him. Now, let's be honest. If all we knew about God was that he was God and that he allowed bad things to happen, then maybe we could say, sure. Why respect him? I mean, why respect a God that allows for children to starve and children to be beaten and, and sickness to come upon those who are good and families to be broken? I mean, why? The good news is God opens his mouth in chapter 38. And Jory talked about this passage last week, but I just want to read to you the beginning of it because it sums up God's argument so well. And, and I encourage you to read the whole thing. Or better, find James Earl Jones reading the whole thing and, and listen to it and, and you will be thoroughly impressed, I promise. So, beginning of Job 38, this is what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, 
Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said... This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? God says, I am God. You are not. And you have no right to tell me what is best and what is good and what is right. God looks at Job and his friends who are sitting there debating about whether God should be able to allow bad things to happen to good people. And he says, hey... I am God. You are not. I deserve your respect no matter what. Doesn't fit inside of our box, right? I mean, it doesn't fit. When I read this, I'm bothered. I say, well, God, you have to give me a reason that you allowed these things to happen to Job. I mean, you need to give me a reason for the bad things that happen to good people. Our culture teaches us that everybody must answer to me. That everything that happens in this world should be okay with me. But God looks down and says, hey, I'm not giving you an answer. Why? I am God and you are not. And so therefore, you should respect me. You should give me your life. And here's what we need to hear today. I think this is so important for the culture in which we live. For us, even who call ourselves followers of God, to remember. No matter what God allows to happen, He deserves our respect and our love and our devotion by the very fact that He is God. So often, we, like Job's friends, who follow God, feel the need to explain the things that God allows to happen. Don't we? We look at people and we buy into that excuse. I mean, oh... If I could just answer the the questions that they have about why God has allowed this, then maybe they would think about serving God. But here's the truth. They need to serve God because because God is God and they are not. Here's the cool thing. That's a pretty solemn thought, right? But with it, at the end of the book of Job comes a wonderful and amazing theological truth. God says, look, I'm God. And so therefore, respect me. If nothing else, you need to respect me. But then he shows where living for God leads. Job chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice an offering for yourselves. But my servant Job Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter was named Jimima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. Now here's the thing. The end of this is much closer to fitting in our box, right? The good guy gets the good ending. And so it's easy to just throw away everything we've seen in the first 41 chapters. That good things don't always happen to good people. That the bad don't even always get what they deserve on this earth. It's easy to throw that away. It's also easy to throw away what I just said, that God deserves our respect no matter what he allows to come into our lives. Because here he blesses Job, the good guy. And so we could throw all of that away, but that's not the point here. The point is this. God is gracious and he offers undeserved mercy upon those who are his servants. Just look at this this passage of scripture that, that, that we read here. I mean... Job doesn't just get the things back that he had lost. He is totally and utterly blessed. But before that even, the friends see the mercy of God. God is angry with these friends. And, and if you've been here over the last eight weeks as we've studying the book, have been studying the book of Job, then you know that God has every right to be angry at these people. Now, somewhere out there in our world, it seems that, that people have created this concept that if God's mad at anybody, then, then he's not fair, right? I mean, we've tried to throw sin out the window, and we've tried to make bad okay, and, we, and people, really, this happens, say, well, if God's mad about anything that we do, then he's just not fair. I mean, how can that be? But I think that almost every person would agree that God should be mad at these men. I mean, Job is suffering like we talked about, some of the worst suffering that the world has ever known as far as a personal tragedy goes. And then these guys show up, and instead of comforting Job, they try to talk Job into the fact that he's been sinning. But they do it in a harsh way. I mean, they call him a worm at one point, and before that actually, but maybe more uh, convincing as far as their deserving of God's anger goes, is that they look at Job and say, hey, your children who died, they deserve that for sin in their lives. I think that we can all agree that that God has every right to be angry at these men. But here's the thing. God, instead of punishing them, giving them what they deserve, say, says, I'm not going to punish you. But look what he says in the midst of it. He says, hey, their folly is the problem here. Now, the word folly, you know, we think of just foolishness, but it's been described this way. The denial of God's goodness. God probably doesn't have that exact definition in mind here, but it does show the strength of the word in the Old Testament. Listen to how Proverbs uses it. 19.23 A person's own folly leads them to ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. 
Folly isn't just not knowing. Folly is, is somehow, some way, turning your back on God and not doing what He wants. Isaiah 32, 6 says, For fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread air concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. And so when we look at these men, This isn't just about them kind of being harsh to Job. They are really doing something here to pull Job away from God and the relationship that he has with God. And so they deserve to be punished. I mean, these people deserve punishment. We don't know what the punishment is that God was going to give them. When I've read it in the past, I've always thought that it was death. I don't know why, because that is nowhere in the book of Job. But that's what I always thought about. No matter what it was, though, God says, look... Go offer sacrifices, Job will pray for you, and I will offer you mercy. The point here is that God takes away the punishment that these people deserve. And then notice that he offers Job this amazing grace. couple things to notice. First of all, it seems chronological. Job prays for his friends, and then God restores his fortunes. Now, we don't need to play the hypothetical game of what if Job wouldn't have prayed for his friends. We, we played that game last Sunday in my Connect group, but we don't need to play that game this morning. But we do need to recognize this. Job remains faithful to God until the end. At the very beginning of the book, God talks about Job, and he's talking to Satan, and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? He says that in chapter 1. He says that in chapter 2. Here we come to the end of the book, and in the first two verses, we see that God four times calls Job his servant. The question in this book is whether or not Job is serving God only because God is blessing him, or if he's serving God for other reasons. And the question is answered with the resounding, yes, Job is serving God because he loves God, because he respects God, because he knows that God is God. And so we see from the beginning of the book until the end of the book that Job remains faithful to God. And God blesses that. I mean, God blesses that. The other important thing that we need to see is that Job doesn't just get a life that he once had. He gets something far beyond that. In 42.6, we see that Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job looks at God and says, Hey God, now that I have heard your voice, I know that I deserve nothing. The whole book he's been saying, God, I've been serving you, and so I deserve a good life. God, I've been serving you, and so you shouldn't have done this to me. God, I've been serving you, and so won't you just answer my questions? But in 42.6, he looks at God and says, I recognize you're God, and I deserve nothing. And so from that point on, what we see is not just a restoration of Job's old life, but the grace of God being poured out on the man who has stayed faithful to him, his servant, Job. He gets double the amount of animals, right? We see that if you looked at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, we see an exact uh, doubling of the amount of, of animals that he has. We also see that his brothers and sisters come back, but they don't just come back. Now they're bringing him silver and gold rings. So it's further than what he had before, right? And then we see that Job's children are doubled 
Because he has 10 more. And you say, well, that's not double. That's just 10 more. And here's what I think the underlying point is. Job now has 10 children waiting for him in the afterlife. And he has 10 alive with him on earth. And so God doubles his children. Animals, when they die, I hate to tell you and I hate to think about it, but they don't go to heaven. And children do. And so Job now has double the amount of of children. And then we see that Job lives double the amount of time that he's already had in his life. And there's two ways to understand it. Either he was 70 years old and he lives another 70 years, or he lives another 140 years. And he sees his children and their children to the fourth generation, which in the Old Testament is the crowning jewel of a godly life. And so we see in the person of Job, not God saying, hey, let me be fair to you. Here's what you've done, and so here's what you've deserved. He looks at Job and says, you are my servant, and so I want to bless you. And here is the lesson that we learn. The servants of God, the people who give their lives to God because God is God, will always be blessed in the end. When you flip over to the New Testament, we learn how to become a servant of God. It's one of Paul's favorite terms for himself. I am a servant of Jesus. The story is this, Jesus saw that we were unable to live sinlessly and we were in sin and so he came down from heaven and he died on a cross for the sins of you and I, the wrong things that we have done and he rose again on the third day. And because of that, we are able to accept the gift of salvation and become God's servants. We are able to be faithful to God until the very end. And the Bible shows us quite clearly that if we will remain faithful to him, then God will pour out his grace and his mercy upon us. The truth is that in the middle of affliction, the only hope that we can find is that God someday is going to give us something that we couldn't possibly deserve. That God is going to bestow His grace upon us and offer us an eternal life that is far beyond anything that this world has to offer. That is the only hope in the face of bad things happening to good people. James, talking about suffering in the book of Job, if you were to flip to James chapter 5, describes this perfectly and really makes it the point of the book of Job. Talking to a group of persecuted Christians, here's what he says. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count... As blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Here's the thing. Here's the simple truth for us. When bad things happen to good people, there are only two choices. There are only two choices when tragedy strikes your life or when you look at the world around you and say, wow, That's not very good. You can say, wow, if God is going to allow things like that, if he's going to let these bad things happen to me, then I am not going to serve him. 
Because he can't be that good and he can't be that loving. And he can't be that powerful. That is one choice that we have. And here's the other choice. We can look at God and say, you are God and I will serve you. I will give my life to you. I will accept the gift of salvation that you offered through the cross. And I will trust that ultimately your grace will win. And I will spend eternity with you in the glory and perfection of heaven. I think people want it both ways. They want to be able to turn their backs on God and look forward to something. But the book of Job and the Bible as a whole only presents two choices. Get angry with God. Say, God, I'm not going to serve you because you let this happen. Or serve God until the very end. And trust that His grace and His mercy is going to win out over all the bad things that exist in this world. For Job, who suffered the, the, maybe the worst personal tragedy that we can read about in, in the history of the world, he said, well, I don't know why God would allow this. I don't know what God's doing. I don't feel very good about God. This feels unjust, unfair. It doesn't fit inside of my box. But you know what? I'm going to serve him until the end because he is God And he is the only chance I have for anything good to come out of this life. And God looks down at him. He says, Job, you don't deserve anything from me. But I want to bless you anyway because you are my servant. I want to pour my grace on you because you are my servant. I want to show you how wonderful and amazing my love is and what a great choice you have made to serve me. That's what makes God's grace so great is that we don't deserve it at all and yet he provides it for us it's not just amazing grace it's ridiculously amazing grace because it goes beyond anything that we can understand when we look at the sinful lives that we live and how good god promises it will be for those who love him today we are going to celebrate that and think about that and remember that through communion and so i asked this morning i mean we we think about communion and it's so easy. And I think we do a good job as a church of not allowing this to happen. But it's so easy just to put a piece of bread in your mouth and drink a little grape juice and be done with it. But this morning, I really encourage you to, to think about how ridiculously amazing God's grace is for us. That, that Jesus would come and, and die. I mean, his body was broken and his blood was poured out. And he did that so that you and I could serve him. And the result of that is we can look at tragedy around the world and say, you know what, I have hope because I will serve my God until the end and he promises his grace through the blood of Jesus. And so as you take this this morning, I really encourage you to think about that grace and how that grace allows for you, if you accept it, to face the evil the bad, the horrible, the tragedy that exists in this world. The band's going to sing a song, and it's about being in the presence of God. And, and I hope that it's a new song. You can sing along, but, but I hope you reflect on this. Nothing that Jesus did to offer us eternal life was deserved by us. God is God. We are not. He deserves our respect no matter what. But he loved us and cared about us and was compassionate enough 
to die on a cross to save us so that we could have eternal blessing without any any level of deserving on our part. I just really pray and hope that you will remember that. Lord, we're totally undeserving of the things that you do for us, God. And I, I just pray that we would remember that today. God, on one side of that, I pray that we would remember that, that we don't deserve all the good things that take place in our life right now. God, I mean, we don't deserve the blessings that you bestow upon us. And I especially think of, of this church, Lord, and you gave us this wonderful gift and, and you've put these people around us that genuinely care about us. And it's just incredible to think about that, God. But, but Lord, we don't deserve it, and so we thank you, God. And, and God, we definitely don't deserve the eternal life that you promise us, but you gave it to us. And so I, I just want to thank you, Lord. I thank you that, that you stepped out of the perfection of heaven to come into this world where bad things happen to good people so that we could have good things happen to us who really aren't that good, God. I thank you, Lord, that you are the epitome of bad things happening to good people because, Jesus, you live so perfectly and so wonderfully, helping so many people, and yet the worst things happen to you, far worse than happened to Job, God, because you experienced the horrific pain of the cross and the torture of being spiritually separated from your Father, Lord. I thank you, God, that, that you did that because you love us so much, God. And I pray as we take the bread and the cup this morning that, that we would not neglect that gift, but we would be so thankful for it. God, I pray for anybody here this morning, anybody that might listen to this online, God, that has not given their life to you, who God is looking at you and saying, I don't believe but really they mean I don't respect him because there's too many bad things in this world. I pray, God, that they would give their lives to you because you are God and because, Lord, it's the only way that we can have hope in the midst of the hurting and the suffering and the pain that this world brings about on such a consistent basis. God, I pray for those who had hypocritical parents, God, that raised them in the church and treated them horribly. And I just, I just pray, God that they wouldn't blame you, but they would turn to you to find hope and comfort, God. And I pray for those who have experienced the loss of, of loved ones, Lord, and, and they're looking at you and saying, how could you? How could you do that? And I pray, God, that they would turn to you, and instead of blaming you and pushing away from you, they would turn to you and they would find hope in you, God. Love you, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys come forward.